Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Good evening, my brothers and sisters. I'm very glad to be here this evening and be learning along with you from this uh, from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. But before I get into that, I want to say a few words. Um, Sandy and I knew a man, a chiropractor, some years ago who had this natural frown on his face. That's just how his mouth was. And one day one of his patients asked him if he was happy. And he said, well, yes. And she said, well, you need to tell your face that you are happy. <laughs> so she, my, my good wife pokes at me like that sometimes. So I'm sorry. I, give me a little grace if I have a fierce visage or if I look scary. But uh, in fact, my heart is open to you. And I think that I can speak for all the leaders here that um, our heart is open to you. We want to encourage you and to build you up and to comfort you in the gospel and to walk with you in times when you are confronted and exhorted to repent uh, because we are walking together this life of repentance and faith. And there's power when young and old can come together around Christ and be of help to one another. So... Last week, Stan gave us a good word from chapter 8 to build on. And you know, that last verse is still ringing in my ears. If I could just read it from the LSB. It says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, ever, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Every time I read that verse, the reality of what it's saying just really challenges me. My liberty could cause my brother to stumble, meaning to stumble back into sin. Still saved? Yes. Paul calls him a brother. But now bruised and bleeding on the ground because of my lack of basic Christian love. In Romans 13, verse 10, Paul wrote that love does no harm to a neighbor. Love does no harm. Real love, expressed in thoughtful, unselfish actions, makes every effort to eliminate harm, even giving up rights and liberties. Remember Stan's facetious example of Arguments over burgers at In-N-Out. And then remember how he stepped much closer to what the Corinthian church was struggling with, with his example of playing cards. Now, there's no moral problem with a deck of cards or with playing card games. None. But what if a man who has gambled all his money away and has lost his job and his wife and his family because of that, 
is then brought to repentance and saving faith. And he doesn't even want to touch a deck of cards ever again in his life. Will we despise him for his tender conscience and lack of knowledge? And what if we invite him to play an innocent game of poker with us, kind of chiding him and pushing him against his better judgment, and because he is weak, his restraint is overcome, and he ends up going right back down that dark hole of destructive gambling again. Now, can the Holy Spirit, will the Holy Spirit help him up again? Well, yes, but we've sinned against him. Liberty without love causes great harm. Now then Paul uh, continues to write chapter 9, and I just want to read chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. He writes this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, Paul seems to be going off in a completely different direction here, as if he's done with the subject of meat offered to idols. But he's not done with that yet, because at the end of chapter 10, he's going to come right back around and hit that from a different angle. So, in chapter 8, Paul shines a light on a lack of love in that church, in the exercise of Christian liberty. And here he's continuing this theme. Here in chapter 9, he's turning that light to shine on himself, as a faithful father should be able to do, to show by his example how he himself is giving up rights and liberties to combat another kind of problem, not only in the Corinthian church, but in Many churches. So in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 9, he gives up his right to be supported by the churches. A far greater, of, this is of far greater importance than just the liberty of being able to eat meat offered to idols. And then in verses 19 to 23, he gives up liberties... Christian liberty as he lives among Jews and Gentiles and brings them the gospel message. And then in verses 24 through 27, he gets down to some brass tacks about the need to make our body to be our slave and not allow it to be our master. So, uh, in verses 1 through 18, let's engage then with this right of the apostles to be supported by the churches that Paul is giving up. Now, he begins by establishing uh, the fact that he is actually an apostle. So, verses 1 through 3, again. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. 
Do you sense that there's something not right here? So, there is a conflict between Paul and some in that church, which moves him here to defend himself and his rights as an apostle. And we'll look into that conflict a little later. But in his defense, Paul begins by asking some rhetorical questions uh, that demand a positive answer. So, so yes, he is free. And yes, he does enjoy the same freedom that they enjoy through the knowledge of the truth, even about meat offered to idols. And yes, he is an apostle. He is, has been sent out into the world with a message and given authority to speak it. He is one of God's ambassadors. He's calling men and women to repentance and faith everywhere he can go. He's traveling around for that purpose. And yes, Jesus Christ himself personally sent Paul. So yes, Paul is in fact an apostle. And yes, the believers in Corinth are the result of his work in the Lord. They're the very stamp of the approval of Jesus Christ upon his efforts. Further evidence that, yes, Paul is an apostle. So now that he has established that, then in verses 3 through 6, he goes on to lay out what the rights of uh, the apostles, what, what, what rights and benefits that belong to them, that the churches are obligated to give to them. He writes this, My defense, in verses 3 through 6, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have authority to eat and drink? Do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have authority to refrain from working? So three more rhetorical questions. That Two of them, the first two, demand an answer of yes. Yes, the apostles do have authority to eat and drink. The right to be provided food and drink at the expense of the churches. And yes, the apostles did have the authority, the right to bring along a believing wife. And most of the apostles did just that. And this means... The wives also enjoyed the right to be supported by the churches. And the last question demands a no. No, Barnabas and Paul still do have the right to refrain from working, just like the other apostles, even if they don't exercise it. So the apostles had a right to refrain from working and to have all their needs provided by the churches, so they could devote all their time and effort to the ministry of the word and prayer. So the apostles had rights and benefits to food and drink, to have their wives be given food and drink, and to be entirely supported by the churches. So if Paul is an apostle, he has those same rights as the others. Next, then, in verses 7 through 14... He doubles down on this right to be supported by the churches, and he stoutly defends it. Who at any time 
serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Or who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So, if you weren't convinced before, I hope you're convinced now that, yes, the apostles have a right of support from the churches. So notice that Paul, he first defends that right with common sense. Common sense that can be seen in principles just embedded in everyday real human life from the military and from agriculture. And just from these examples alone, he intends us to understand that, of course, the apostles should be supported by the churches. Common sense. Did you know that Jesus used common sense arguments just like this to just swat down the silly man-made Sabbath uh, rules that the scribes and Pharisees had made? Read Matthew 12 sometime and and other uh, similar passages. Now, some might dismiss common sense as just merely human judgment. So Paul connects common sense with a case law from the law of Moses. And he's showing that God himself, again, commands the support of the apostles. And the case law he quotes requires that working animals be compensated for their labor, just like the hired laborer was to be compensated. So if oxen were to be allowed to eat some of the grain that they were helping to thresh out, then certainly the apostles, who are much more important than oxen, should be supported by the churches. You don't starve working animals, and certainly you don't starve the apostles. And then Paul points to the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices and meal offerings. And a good portion of those offerings and sacrifices went to feed the priests and their family. And the same thing was happening in the pagan uh, worship rituals. And then to cap it off, he writes that the Lord himself directed that those who proclaim the gospel have a right to get their living from their work in the gospel. So certainly, above everything else, if Jesus said it, then it's certainly true. So from common sense, Old Testament case law, Old Testament ceremonial law, and from the commands of Jesus himself, Paul has clearly shown that the churches have an obligation to support the apostles. 
Now, just to clarify, this principle still applies today to evangelists and church planters who are out on mission, who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They are doing the same work that Timothy and Titus and Silas and others did back then. They are sowing spiritual things, the word of the living God, and we should consider it only right that they reap a harvest of our material things to, and support from us. And while the context of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 9 is related to the apostles, in 1 Timothy 5 he applies the same principles and scriptures to show that the elders and the pastors of the local church ought to have the same support so they too can devote their time to the ministry of the word and prayer. And I hope you see, like Sandy and I do, and just rejoice in the fact that here at Trinity, because of generous giving, our pastors are able to devote themselves to the word and prayer all of their time, and we are reaping a very rich spiritual bounty from their labor every Sunday and all throughout the week. Praise God for that. So we have to conclude from all that he's written here that Paul is an apostle and that he has the right to be supported. Now I mentioned earlier that there's a conflict between Paul and some men in the church there in Corinth. So remember in verse 2 he wrote this, If to others... I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. And in verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. And then in verse 12, if others share this authority over you, do we not more? So what's going on? Who are these others that Paul keeps talking about? Well, here's a clue. Those in Corinth who came to faith through Paul could not have claimed to have believed through Peter or Christ. Remember the problem that we saw in the first couple chapters? And so those who could make that kind of a claim must have come from Judea and then arrived in Corinth after Paul had preached the gospel there. And here they are, and they appear to be exalting themselves as if having believed through Peter or even through Christ himself gave them some kind of importance and special standing that others didn't have. And they were looking down on Paul, and they were questioning his claim to be an apostle, and they're scrutinizing and examining him, and they're finding fault with him. Well, how is Paul failing in their eyes? Well, he wouldn't take food and drink from the church. And he was single, and that was questionable in their eyes. And he actually worked to provide himself instead of stopping or refraining from work. So, he must not be a real apostle. After all, a real apostle would trust God to provide, wouldn't he? And Jesus didn't refuse support. Jesus didn't work to support himself. 
So Paul must not be a real apostle. So don't trust him. Instead, trust us and support us. So if these others that Paul refers to are the same men who were claiming to be apostles, the ones that Paul exposes as wolves in sheep clothing, sheep's clothing in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 20, they were not only accepting support from the church, they were also sucking money out of the church. And Peter makes mention of men like this in his second letter, and he writes that in their greed they will exploit you with false and deceptive words. And as Paul later wrote to Timothy, these kinds of men use their pretended godliness as a means for dishonest gain. The New Testament is actually full of warnings about such men, and Christ himself warns us about such men. Greedy swindlers, uh, pretending to be apostles, or evangelists and missionaries were taking advantage of the churches in that day like they do in our day. A few years ago, Sandy and I heard a missionary tell how he went to a certain country in Africa and spoke to an official that was high up in the government of that country. And that man was livid because some prosperity gospel preachers from our country had just left that country after having milked millions of dollars from the poor people in that country. So the greedy love of money is just one of the telltale signs of a false teacher. In Acts 20, Paul has gathered the, the group of the Ephesian elders in front of him, and he admonishes them. And here's one thing, one of the things he says. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered, have worked to provide for my own needs and those who are with me. In everything I showed you that by laboring in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you see his deep concern here? It's the same concern that has been flowing since his time in Corinth. So by him giving up his right to be supported, he is counteracting the tendency toward laziness, toward the greedy love of money, toward the exploitation of the weak, and the widow and the fatherless by leaders in the church, by false apostles, men pretending to be missionaries. And he knows that some of the very men that are standing in front of him from Ephesus, some of these elders will actually allow wolves in sheep's clothing into that church. Read Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. But he is not here giving up his right to be supported. He's not saying that pastors and elders should not be supported by the church, but instead should work to provide for their own living. 
But by his example here, he is challenging them and warning the apostles and the missionaries and the church leaders to examine themselves and see what's there, lest they fall into the lust for money. Verse 12 again. If others, he writes, those others share in this authority, if they can assert this right over you, do we not more? Or don't we have even more of a right to your support? We preach the gospel to you. Nevertheless, he writes, we did not use this authority. We did not uh, press our right for, to support, for support. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He was willing to give up this right and to suffer what in 2 Corinthians he calls starvation and lack of basic human needs so that he would not hinder the gospel in any way. So when churches misuse money and pastors and missionaries misuse money and manipulate people to give them money, they cause great offense. And many walk away from the church in disgust. And they label all the pastors and all Christians as hypocrites. And they are led to blaspheme the name of Christ in the world. And then in verses 15 to 18... He concludes, But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things, so it will be done so in my case. For it would, it would be better for me to die than to have anyone make my boast an empty one. For if I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I proclaim the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my authority in the gospel. Now, others know what Paul's doing here. I, he's probably encouraging many of his fellow apostles and, and, and the evangelists that he knows to be careful. You better, maybe you should work because of what these other men are doing. So he's been vocal about giving the gospel free of charge. And he didn't volunteer to be an apostle. He was commanded to do it. He wasn't given a choice in the matter. He is being compelled to go preach. He must do it, like it or not. He cannot escape this. If he runs away like Jonah, he's going to be spanked and drugged right back by the Holy Spirit and told to go preach the gospel like you were told in the beginning. If he goes out voluntarily, he has a reward. But even if he must be forced to go out, he still has this stewardship in the gospel that he cannot escape and that he will be accountable Four. 
So by giving up his right to be supported, he essentially loses his financial reward. He loses the reaping of the material benefit that he had a right to receive. And we might wonder why anyone could or would continue in gospel work under the suffering that Paul had voluntarily put himself under by refusing support from the church in Corinth. But his reward is to offer the gospel free of charge and stand back and watch the Holy Spirit do its work because he has gotten out of the way. Let's move on to verses 9 through 23 where Paul shifts his focus to how He lives everyday life as he moves among Jews and Gentiles, giving up Christian liberties to maximize unnecessary offense and maximize gospel impact. You might be aware of the mutual ill feeling that was in that day between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, led by the scribes and the Pharisees, despised the Gentiles because they were sinners, and they were gross sinners. And the Gentiles, on their part, despised the Jews for being arrogant hypocrites who pretended that they weren't sinners. Verses 19 through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. So as Paul has already asserted, He is free. He is free from obligations to any culture, to any person, to any people, because he is a son of God. He belongs to God. But he's voluntarily made himself a slave to all these peoples and cultures by giving up his liberties in Christ, serving both Jew and Gentile so that he might win more. So he fits into their culture and their way of living to the extent that he can. Missionaries are doing that today. But he does draw a line. Again, verse 21, he writes, To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So when he lives among the Gentiles, he still remains under the law of God as illuminated by the new covenant in Christ. 
and he does not indulge in their sinful ways of living. Therefore, he does not roll in the gutter with them, thinking that if he does that with them, he's going to win some of them. No, he's calling them to repent of their sin. And then when he's among the Jews, he lives as a Jew, but he doesn't participate in the Jewish sinful ways of living and thinking. He doesn't participate in their arrogant pride. And he does not believe at all. He doesn't support their thinking that if they just do the sacrifices, they're okay. God accepts them. He's calling both Jew and Gentile to repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. So this is good wisdom today for missionaries to navigate different cultures, and even for us, because we're living among a lot of differences that have sprung up in the last years. But just want to give you something to chew on here, because we have to understand this. And I'm going to use an example that is common. So if we're willing to tattoo our whole bodies or scar ourselves to win others who do that, are we also willing then to dress like the Amish to win them as well? Just some food for conversation. (laughs) So Paul's statement not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, might be confusing. And it certainly is a source of a lot of controversy about how the law of God in the Old Testament applies to us today. Um, I do have thoughts about that, but I haven't discussed them with Sam, so I'm not going to say anything. But all I will say (laughs) is to repeat Paul's words in Romans 3.20 that I think helps us to center ourselves, that through the law, through the Old Testament law, comes the knowledge of sin. And thank God he sent a Savior to save us from our sin against him, described described in the Old Covenant law. So Paul is giving up Christian liberty in both Jewish and Gentile settings so that by all possible means, all legitimate means, he might save some. He's holding on to the law of God, using it though as it was intended to be used, and he remains under the law of Christ. And then in concluding chapter 9, Paul now speaks of the need to make our body our slave and not allow it to be our master. Verses 23 through 27. So I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run, then, in such a way that you may win. Now, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore, I run in such a way, not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. 
But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So Paul knows there is a potential for him to allow his fallen nature to get out of control and lead him over the guardrails, over the cliff, into grievous sin. Even such a sin that would disqualify him from further participation in the gospel ministry. He knows this about himself. And we must know this kind of thing about ourselves too. So he's painting this picture that we can understand. He's, if those who participate in the athletic games run in such a way that they will win with everything that they have, and if they exercise such strong self-control in their dietary habits, in their use of their time, and in their diligent exercise in order to win, then certainly it's appropriate and necessary for Paul and for us to do something similar and not just sit and expect the Lord to do something that he's asked us to do. Paul is fighting to make his body be his slave and not let it be his master. He worships God and not his body. So he does not worship, he does not bow down to, he does not obey his sinful urges and passions, and they are there, just like us. They are there in him. He runs with a purpose. He goes with a purpose, and he boxes in such a way that his blows land on the target, and the target is his body. It's his body, his sinful nature, which if he indulges it, it will lead him into sin. It'll, it will cause grievous offense in the church. It, it will bring dishonor to Christ in the world, and it will disqualify him as someone who didn't live out what he taught others. From Charles Bridges' commentary on the book of Proverbs 7, chapter 7. Self-confidence has ruined many a promising profession of faith. Self-confidence. But tenderness of conscience, awareness of weakness, dependence on divine strength and divine promises, that is the frame of mind in which he who is born of God keeps himself. In other words, protects himself and the evil one does not touch him. We must listen to this admonition and get up and work on the mastery over our body with the help of Jesus Christ. So rights and responsibilities, obligations and benefits, How will we use them? Will we follow the example of Paul who was following hard after Christ? 
Or will we lose sight of the battle that we must engage in? So may love for Christ, honor for Christ, lead us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and seek not to harm them. And to love those who are still dead in their sin, seeking not to harm them, but not to offend them, but to lead them and win them to Christ. And may our love for Christ lead us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus in a way that will put false teachers to shame, in a way that will remove unnecessary offense in the church and outside of the church, and in a way that will enable us to win the war against sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your good providence you have preserved this book for us. And that we even see the struggles of this man whom you use so, uh, so much. Father, press these things down into our hearts and help us, Father. And by the joy of salvation which is our strength to rise up and to walk with Jesus and to repent from sin and to enjoy living life together in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.